Good morning. Thank you for the introduction. Um, faithful husband, loving father, only by the continual moment by moment, nanosecond by nanosecond enabling of God, failed a lot along the way, and God keeps coming alongside and encouraging, carrying me, carrying us. Um, I'm hearing about the trials of your body just in the last 10 days. Um, House fires, accidental deaths. Um, Gosh, isn't life hard? Um, And we don't have answers to the complexities of it all. God does, yes, we have answers in Him, through Him, through His Word. But boy, life seems to be uniquely designed to undo us. Um, And I think in God's sovereign, merciful wisdom, that's part of the reason. Because if we're not continually, day by day, reminded that apart from Him, we are dust, (laughs) we need to be undone regularly. So my passion, my desire this morning would be Number one, to bring you comfort through the Holy Spirit, through His Word. And yet I know that with the Word comes conviction. And conviction's anything but comfortable. But it leads us to the One who is our comfort. Because my propensity is to draw comfort from the things of this world. I got off, came down in my little yellow bug, um, which is not my car of choice, by the way. It's a car God provided for me. And I drive around sunny Florida and my happy little 2001 yellow Volkswagen bug that a PCA ARP elder gifted to me with much graciousness. And I get off I-95 and I'm sitting there at the light and I realize I'm sitting behind a window-tinted Mercedes coupe with a Tampa Bay Buccaneers license plate. In front of him is a gray Mercedes coupe and next to it is a Lexus convertible. And there Chuck Berry sits in his yellow bug. My sunroof's broken. My passenger side window doesn't roll down. And I'm reminded, boy, am I tempted. Every day, I am so tempted to draw strength, comfort, pleasure, control, power from the world's stuff. And it just doesn't, it doesn't meet the challenge. Letters after your name don't meet the challenge. Dollar signs in your 401k don't meet the challenge. There's only one person that can meet the challenge. And it ain't me. (laughs) It's Him. It's Jesus. He is our peace. He is my righteousness. He is my faithfulness. He is my love. Right? So I, I come a messy guy, privileged by God, only by His enabling to be in ministry for... can't believe I'm as old as I am. can't believe I have a grandson. It's only by His enabling. So, lest we go until 12.30 this, this morning, or that'll be afternoon then, I better get started. Um, we live in a crazy world. It's becoming increasingly crazier. I saw a... Uh, news article 
online, 20-year-old, 22-year-old Brit um, internet influencer was suggesting that maybe we shouldn't bear the load of the history of World War II on our kids in school because it's just too heavy. It's too difficult for them to handle. Don't judge him. I mean, he has a point. I got a 14-year-old daughter and we don't we haven't watched Schindler's List together yet, although I would like to soon. <laughs> One public high school principal knows this full well, that the world's hard to navigate. His school board recently voted to relieve him of his public school principal position. He's been in the education for 26 years. Why? Because of his email response to a parent. And here's my understanding of what happened. In 2018... A parent emailed him inquiring whether or not the school was adequately teaching about the Holocaust. Maybe you read this article. Some context here. 134,000 Jews live in his county. A number of the students in his high school are of Jewish descent. In his reply, the principal made statements that reflect the cultural confusion that we're all experiencing these days, where lines are being blurred between fact and fiction truth and lies, beliefs, and objective historical evidence. Now here's what got him into hot water. Here's part of his written response. Quote, I can't say the Holocaust is an actual historical event because I'm not in a position to do so as a school district employee. Unquote. He went on to say, quote, you have your thoughts, but we are a public school and not all our parents have the same beliefs. Unquote. Now listen, this isn't time to bash the public school. That's not the point. Some of us have felt the Lord calling us to have our kids in public school for lots of reasons. Partially because they learn how to defend their faith and share their faith in that setting. So that's not the point here. Not trying to condemn anyone in here who has their kids in public school, nor am I trying to condemn anyone who, who homeschools their kids. My wife and I have done everything with our four daughters who are now 25, 23, 21, and 14. We have homeschooled. We have charter schooled. We have Christian schooled. We have homeschooled. We evaluated at the end of each said, what do they need? What do we need? What's the best? And we've done our best with that. And I'm not trying to judge this principle either. But his reply seems to imply if someone doesn't believe that an event occurred, it would be insensitive, even offensive, to then teach it as historical fact. That's a problem. Or it would be insensitive to teach someone something that might cause them discomfort. That's a little troubling too. How do we prepare our own children for life in this very real, very difficult Very challenging world. So here's what I do know. We're in a truth crisis. If tolerance is valued over the truth, if belief can take priority over historical fact, then we risk losing touch with reality itself. Right? Which is the point, isn't it? That's why I would want to be driving a smoked out Mercedes coupe with a seasoned pass at Tampa Bay Buccaneers and live in a big house on the water somewhere so that I can just stay inoculated from tragedy and difficulty and poverty 
Again, I'm not even condemning you if you have season tickets to the Bucks or drive a Mercedes or live on the water. You can do that and honor God, absolutely. I'm just saying, if I had all those things, I probably wouldn't be here this morning. I might not be married to my current wife. I would probably have a litany of addictions. (laughs) More than I do now. So ignorance is bliss, right? Until you gain wisdom to see its folly, then it's no longer blissful to be ignorant because now you know. Today's passage shows us that the truth crisis isn't, it isn't new at all. In fact, the truth crisis began in the garden, quite honestly. Did God really say? This passage deals with a group of people's unbelief towards something that was factual. And what we're going to learn from it could be a bit unnerving. I, I know it will be unnerving for me, even though I've preached this sermon once before. <laughs> so let's pray. Before we go any further, pray with me, please. Father God, would you ground us this morning in what is true and what is real? Root us more firmly in your peace that honestly passes our own human understanding. Holy Spirit, would you lead us deeper? Please lead us deeper into the restoring power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you reveal how you would have us each one of us individually to respond to what you're saying through your word this morning. Move us from understanding. Move us beyond just understanding, Father. Move us to faithful action and enable us to follow Jesus even today. To follow Jesus into His mission for each one of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read the text one more time then we'll... Look at a couple pieces of it, if you will. So if you want to follow along, you can. Mark 6, verses 1-7. through He went away from there, Jesus, and He came to His hometown, and His disciples followed Him. On the Sabbath, He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard Him were astonished, saying, where does this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to Him? How are such mighty works done by His hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. Let me repeat that. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching the twelve by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So in preparing this message, listen, I've been faced with a challenging question, and that is, does Jesus ever, ever, does Jesus ever marvel with me because of my faith in Him. I know that He's marveled because of my unbelief. That's the challenge. So let me explain how I landed there. The story breaks itself. Really, the passage breaks itself into two stories. One, the majority in this passage is Jesus visiting His hometown. It describes just how the people of Nazareth in His hometown, where He grew up, where His family still resides, 
how they responded to him and how Jesus reacts to them when he goes and shares. The second story is what Jesus did in response to what happened in Nazareth. So we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at the story number one and then just a brief time looking at story number two. All of this is in preparation for this table that's before us. And my challenge to you this morning, I am going to challenge you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't you dare come to this table casually this morning. Don't you dare come to this table with a sense of familiarity because familiarity breeds contempt. And that's what this passage is teaching us about. Some of you in this room understand feeling contempt for someone else. And it may be misplaced. It may be with your spouse. It may be with your kids. Kids, it may be with your parents. Familiarity breeds contempt. It really does. This world has a tendency to lull us to sleep, to stuff our ears. We have a tendency, a propensity for that. We don't want reality. Why? It's hard. It hurts. It's challenging. So Jesus returns to his hometown in this passage. He's been teaching and preaching throughout Galilee. He's also been doing some pretty miraculous stuff. He's been healing deformed body parts with mere touch. He's healed a leper by willing it to be so. He's raised a girl from the dead. From the dead. And he has spoken directly with demonic beings that are invisible. Not only has he spoken with them, he's commanded them to do things, and guess what? They obey him. And in the chapter after this, he's about to command molecules of water and air to obey him too, and guess what? They do. Who the heck is this guy? (laughs) So he comes to Nazareth. Up to this point, crowds have gathered around him. So much so that he, he and his disciples can't even eat. They go into a house. They, they're mobbed. And Jesus allows it. He allows them in. Some roof gets torn open and they lower a guy down through the roof. Why doesn't Jesus stop it? Who's the homeowner? Why aren't you defending the homeowner? They're tearing up his house. He lets it happen. Mobs of people. People bringing the sick, their family members, their siblings, their parents, their kids. They're grandparents to Jesus. Why? Because He has power. And that power is healing people through the vehicle of faith. Through the vehicle of people believing that He can actually do it because He's not a mere man. He's God's man. So Jesus returns to His hometown with His disciples this time. And I need to add this. This is the second visit to Nazareth since he started his public ministry. Remember he was baptized? Something fairly miraculous happened there. The cloud, sky opens up. The Father speaks. The Holy Spirit descends on him. It appears like something like a dove. That's fairly cataclysmically miraculous. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Then he goes off into the desert. Why did he go there? The Holy Spirit led him there. It's preparation, training, get focused. He's ministered to by angels there. 
More miraculous things happening. And then what? He comes out of the wilderness, and what does he begin to do? He immediately begins his healing ministry. No, he immediately begins his teaching ministry. That's his primary ministry. Not healing. That's a byproduct of being the Word of God in flesh. The byproduct of someone who preaches redemptive words is redemptive acts. And he begins to do that too. So where does he go first? Right out of the desert. Oh, Nazareth. What does he do? He goes into the synagogue and he reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. What does that say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads that. Then he rolls the scroll up and sits down and says this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) And all of those, okay, his neighbors, friends, people who've known him since he was wet behind the ears. What does it say in verse 22 of Luke 7? All who spoke... All and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And and then I added then, that's not in Luke 7. It says, and they said, and I put, Chuck Berry added, and then they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And then Jesus tells them the truth. He basically lays into them because he knows the heart behind that question. Is not this Joseph's son? And he says, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. (laughs) And then he says, Jesus says, what we have heard you... He he says, you're going to say this to me. Doubtless you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did in Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. This is his first visit to Nazareth. And then he proceeds to share how the prophet Elijah, during a three and a half year famine, didn't go to the house of a Jewish woman who was a widow and take care of her needs. He went to the house of a Gentile woman and provided her with food. And then he said there were lepers in Israel at this period of time. And the one leper that got healed during this time was a Syrian named Naaman. <laughs> Do you see what he's doing? He's going, Gentiles got God's attention during this time. Why? Because you Jews have allowed God to leave the building. You don't really believe in Him. So what do his fellow Nazarethites, what do they do? They want to stone him. This is his first visit there. So they drag him out to the edge of a hill somewhere outside of town to stone him. And I'm sure they believe they're doing the righteous thing because in Leviticus it says you stone a heretic like that. You stone somebody for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. You stone him, right? What does he do? He doesn't get stoned. Why? Scripture says he walked away. How did he do that? I'd like to ask God that one day. What did that look like, God? He walked away. So, Jesus carries on His ministry, teaching and preaching in different towns. He gathers disciples that He's calling to Himself. Now He's back! And His twelve disciples are with Him, and probably a few more. 
And who are these guys? Are they his bodyguards? Is that why they don't kill him in this passage? Maybe. <laughs> but they're not bodyguards. They're witnesses. They've heard him say and seen him done everything he's done through his public ministry. He's got witnesses. More than two, he's got 12. So, it's scandalous. Listen. He's not attracting crowds in Nazareth. They're not bringing the sick to him. Why? They don't believe he can heal them. They don't believe he's the Messiah. But what's interesting is they believe he can teach really good. And they believe that he's actually done some miraculous things, but they can't imagine how his hands have done these miraculous things. They will not attribute what he's done to him. They can't. It's scandalous. Why? Think about it. This is a homegrown, common man. We've watched him grow up. He grew up with my Johnny. They've watched him. They've watched his family. His family was poor. He's from a humble family. He's had humble training. He's merely a carpenter. He learned what his dad did, and that's what he does. He doesn't have an exquisite education. He doesn't have letters behind his name or in front of his name. Who does he think he is to so audaciously be claiming to be Yahweh's Messiah? No way. I am no fool. I will not believe it. And you can see how sometimes we get so stuck in our arrogance and we think we're so self-righteous and so right about something and we are wrong. So wrong in this case. So wrong that a compassionate, loving God would send his son back to the exact same synagogue where he was almost murdered the first time. Why? So that they can hear the gospel again. And now there's witnesses to talk to about everything he's done with him. Talk to them. You see a gracious God, a gracious father going, man, they tried to murder him. I'll just smoke this town. Nope. Send him back again. That's what the Father does. So you've heard this expression, familiarity breeds contempt. It refers to an extreme knowledge or a close association with someone or something that leads to a loss of respect for them. It's funny, after I preached this sermon last week, I went up to my wife and I confessed to her. I said, I realized as I was preaching this sermon that I have grown too familiar with you and I hold you in contempt at times. You know what she said? She said, I had the same thought. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was a sweet little moment. Familiarity breeds contempt, a loss of respect. So familiarity has bred dangerous amounts of contempt in these townspeople towards Jesus. They're not even open to being persuaded otherwise. Even in the view of the objective historical evidence, even in view of the prophetical evidence from the Holy Scriptures, he's actually doing the things that Isaiah 61 says. No one else is doing them. He is doing them. And he even says, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. All these evidences. Nope. I will not be fooled. You are not the Messiah. How can you be the Messiah? I remember when you were a snotty, runny little kid running around town. You couldn't be the Messiah. You ever done that? Somebody's come to faith. 
You know when they were younger, when they were more foolish and maybe made some really bad decisions, and now they've come to faith, and what is lurking in your heart? Deep skepticism. You're truly not a follower of Jesus. How could you be a follower of Jesus? You are so rebellious. Please apply that judgment to yourself. Please. This morning. And sometimes even as spouses go, we might have been believers for decades, and you look at your spouse and you treat them as though they're the same person they were 15 years ago when they hurt you. As if they have not grown at all in the last 15 years. We want to hold on to that hurt. We want to nurse it because it gives us the righteous indignation to hold someone in contempt. Somehow that makes our work parts feel better. Why? Because it's a form of self-righteousness is what it is. And that thing there is killing you, not anyone else. It's deadening your heart. It's numbing your mind. And you need to let go of it. I need to let go of it. So the next thing in verse 5 and 6, something, man, this is amazing. He could do no mighty work there, except that he, (laughs) Mark, I love it, except that he lays his hand on a few people and healed them, as if that's nothing, right? Anybody done that this last week? Laid your hand on somebody, prayed for them, they're healed. He did no mighty works there. Just goes to show you what kind of works he was doing as he was preaching and traveling, that what we would see as incredibly mighty to Mark. Ah, no mighty work. Just laid his hands on a few people and healed them. But then that verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. Due to the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, Jesus was unable to do mighty works. What does that mean? Is there anything God can't do? Yes. Did you know that? There's lots of things God can't do. He can't do anything that goes against his nature. He can't lie. Never. God will not lie. Why? Because He is truth. He will always be truthful. He can't be unfaithful. He will always fulfill the promises He's made. Right? He can't do something that's outside of His nature. So it's against God's nature. Listen. It's against God's nature to respond actively, redemptively to an arrogant, unrepentant, self-righteous person that is hard-hearted, cold, and resistant towards God. While on the other hand, it is our Heavenly Father's nature to respond to broken and contrite hearts. Sinners, sinners who have broken and contrite hearts that are repentant, For sins realized, even if it's just a little bit realized, God loves to come towards that broken and contrite person and bring redemptive power. Tim Keller puts it this way, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom. Listen. To show how his redemptive power operates, his miracles always healed and restored and delivered people. He didn't just do magic tricks. He was redeeming people. People who expressed a repentant heart towards Him as the the Messiah. He, Keller concludes, he could not do a deed that would not redeem. 
Jesus healing people as a gracious outpouring of a loving father to one who was truly turning from their sin and turning towards God through faith in his son Jesus with all humility and brokenness, yielding themselves. Boy, I don't like doing that. Yielding themselves, offering themselves in total reliance upon God's grace, mercy, forgiveness, and enabling. Church, that's my challenge to you this morning. Do not come to this table this morning without doing business with God and re-yielding your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole life to Him. Or familiarity will breed contempt with this table. Don't do that. Come with a broken and contrite heart. Come to Him freshly admitting you don't have all the answers. You're not always right. You can't manage your life very well. And quite frankly, you fail at a lot of things if you're really honest. And you don't need to keep up the facade of righteousness because He is your righteousness and He will robe you in His righteousness when you come to Him with a contrite and broken spirit. And how often do we need to come to Him with that kind of spirit? Once? Oh, now I'm in. I don't have to be broken and contrite anymore. Sorry. It's a continual lifestyle of being broken and contrite. Boy, He loves to draw near people like that. Where does that start? It starts with the Holy Spirit convicting you that there's something you may need to come clean of before Him. But then He enables you to come. Coming to this table is just as important as coming to Christ whenever that happened for you. And you utilize the exact same faith that you use then now. And you need no less. You probably need more to come to this table with a contrite and broken heart. Listen, there were two times in the Gospels. I'm almost done. And then we can go to communion. I know I'm going longer than you're used to. Forgive me for that, please. There are only two times in the Gospels that Jesus is said to have marveled. One is here. Guess what the other one is? It happens prior to this in, in the historical flow of things. It's in Luke 7, recorded in Luke 7. It's when Jesus... And, 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 and I'd never noticed this before, so this is kind of cool. It's cool how God keeps teaching you things from old stories. There's always something new in an old story. And you won't see those new things unless you're humble to go to God and go, God, I need, you could show me new things from any verse in the Bible. I was telling Chris that I'm the guy in the Central Florida Presbytery who during my ordination exam misquoted John 3.16 in front of R.C. Sproul. So now you know, don't think very highly of me. And it was my church's bumper sticker. Brother. Jesus, Luke 7, hears about a centurion, a Roman, a Greek centurion, who has a servant that he loves so much he wants Jesus to heal him. He's near death. But guess who does not come to Jesus to ask Jesus to come? This is the part I missed. Jesus never met the Roman centurion. He never met him. The Roman centurion sent Jewish elders to Jesus to ask them to ask Jesus to heal his servant. Why? Because he was unworthy to be in Jesus' presence. A Roman 
A Roman centurion felt unworthy to be in Jesus' presence. Felt unworthy to have Jesus under his roof. And this Roman centurion valued his relationship with the Jew. He helped them build their synagogue in their city. So Jesus goes walking towards the centurion's house and who meets him? More friends of the centurion. And one of the friends, they, they come up to him and talk to him. You know what Jesus does? He never sees the Roman centurion. But he says some pretty powerful things about the Roman centurion in that passage. <clears throat> when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word. I love that. Say the word, Jesus, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, he goes to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. The only other time the word marveled is used. Marvel is used twice for Jesus. Once when he marvels at a Greek Roman centurion's faith in him. And the second, when he marvels at the lack of faith in Jewish people who know the law, they've been steeped in it, they know about the Messiah, and they reject him flatly. Even though there's all kinds of historical evidence to the contrary. Two times he marvels. Hence my question, Jesus, have you ever marveled at my faith? Familiarity breeds contempt. So listen. We're about to come to the table. My last point is this. What did Jesus do in the face of all this contempt? What did he do? What did he do next? The very next thing he did after being summarily rejected by his hometown again. Keep in mind, his hometown includes whom? His own family that he grew up with. They are, at this point, they're still rejecting him. His brothers, his sister, they're rejecting him. Anybody here have siblings that are not believers and they think you're nuts? My mother, bless her heart, she just turned 91. She's in a facility in, up where I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. and um, I love her. She needs Jesus. She was wounded deeply by the church in the deep south growing up sees me as a traitor. If I'd come to church in New if I'd come to Christ in New Jersey, she would think differently of me. But I didn't. I came to faith in Augusta, Georgia. That's pretty deep south. In a church with a slave. So at ninety one years old I just visited her recently. She's had a Please, nobody share the sermon with her. I don't want to hurt her feelings, but I'm going to share this with you. It's important. She has a hard time um, finishing thoughts. She got this long thought out. Oh, I wish I'd saved that article, Chuck. It was written by two scientists, and they were, they were explaining how um, everything that's happened in the world has nothing to do with 
Stop trying to convince me to not have faith in Jesus. You need Jesus, Mom. <laughs> Family members can be pretty stubborn and obstinate. So anyway, here's the deal. What did Jesus do? He left Nazareth and continued teaching the gospel of the good news of the kingdom in other towns. And then he redoubled his effort by six and paired up his disciples and sent them out to do what? To do the same. And he gave them authority. Authority to speak his word with power and even to cast out demons and heal people. So what did he do in the, in the face of rejection of his, those who should have been loving him, should have accepted him, his hometown people? What did he do? He just redoubled his efforts to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people. To display redemptive power to people so that they could come to faith. He didn't not love the people in Nazareth. He just said, okay, this is where you are. I'm going to reach other people. You have clearly made up your mind at this point. So he went on mission. That's what you do when you feel like things are falling around and you're tempted to go, well, this isn't worth it. People are rejecting me for my faith. Maybe my faith's not real. Stop. That's not true. The lie is that you should stop doing the mission because people think you're crazy. The rest of Mark 6 is about John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the best human being that has ever lived, get beheaded. Do bad things happen to people who go on mission for Christ? Yes, they do, and they will continue to. You might even lose your head. What does Jesus do in the midst of that? He presses into his mission to share the love of Christ with those who don't know him all around him. He continues to travel to surrounding towns and share the good news of this kingdom that's coming. So listen, we need to go to this table. I know you're watching your clock. We'll be done soon. This table, please, please don't come to this table with a sense of familiarity. I'm going to ask that we have a minute, just a minute, of silence. Just a minute. That's going to seem like an hour and 60 seconds when you're here. But I want you to take a minute. Can I ask you to do that? Take a minute and do business with God. What do you mean, Chuck? Acknowledge what you're hiding to God. Acknowledge your greatest struggle, even if it's an addiction that just has had a hold of you for decades. Bring it up. Maybe you have cancer and no one in here knows. Bring it up. Maybe you have a pornography addiction and nobody knows. Bring it up. To who? To Jesus. Bring it up to Jesus. What is your biggest ask? Bring it up to Jesus. Why? Because he's powerful enough to answer. Will he answer the way you want? No. He'll answer the way he knows you need. But bring it up. Express that faith. Before you come to this table and receive him, repent afresh. Afresh. Come to this table with the urgency that you came to Christ that first time you believed and you realized you were a sinner. Ask him for renewal. Renew my heart, O oh God, who said that. David. Did he need renewal? God's man, God's king. Yes. We need to pray that. So in this 60 seconds, I'm going to shut up in a minute, I promise. I want you to do business with him. It's more important than anything you've got on your schedule this afternoon. Though I'm not trying to be disrespectful to your important things this afternoon. I'm not. 
do business within one minute, and then I think we're going to have a time of prayer, quick confession and prayer, and then we're going to come to the table. The kids are already back in non All right? Pray with me. I'm going to start us out in 60 seconds. Father God, oh, Lord, I need you so desperately. My next brainwave, my next heartbeat is all a gift of your enabling grace. If you withdrew yourself from me, I don't know where I'd be. I'd be face down in the gutter by 5 p.m. Father God, thank you. Blow through here, work. Deepen our hearts. Draw us to yourself. Give us courage to repent and believe in the gospel of fresh this morning. We come to you now in, our, in the quietness of our own hearts.